Hello, you are listening to The Buzzword, a Writing Center pedagogy podcast produced by the Noggle Communication Center at the Georgia Institute of Technology. On this podcast, ComLab consultants discuss communication strategies, genres, and formats with members of the Atlanta and Georgia Tech community to help students and learners of all levels and disciplines more effectively develop and convey ideas. I am your host, Eric Lewis, and today I am joined by a co-host, my boss, Caitlin Kelly, director of the Noggle Communication Center and local panda enthusiast. There's a reason I'm introducing her that way. I don't always do that. (laughs) Caitlin, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. And yeah, no, you can always introduce me as local panda enthusiast. That is always true. And (laughs) it's it's an open secret for anyone who's been in my office. Yeah, that is true. There's the giant panda poster that you inherited from a friend's child, I think you said. And also, <laughs> I feel like you mentioned it in your job interview. Yeah, it, it, it comes up quickly if anyone meets you, I feel. Well, I do have a, a picture of me and Loon Loon. Um, I did a behind the scenes, uh, the, the wild encounter. Highly recommend. <laughs> and speaking of <laughs> zoo programming and zoo programming to be recommended. Today, we are joined by Melissa King, Manager of Public Programs at Zoo Atlanta. Her team creates and teaches educational programs for zoo visitors. These programs are designed to educate zoo visitors about both the animals they are seeing and local and global conservation efforts to protect such animals in the wild, not to mention just instilling a love of animals, that essential motivation to these conservation efforts. And of course, these visitors comprise multiple audiences, kids, teens, adults. It's a communication, (laughs) it's a communication situation, a rhetorical situation that definitely would make me nervous. But (laughs) welcome, Melissa. How are you? Hi, I am doing great. I'm excited to be here with y'all this morning. And I'll also throw out there the Wild Encounter, the Panda Wild Encounter is one of the programs that I work with. So I was excited to hear you mention that, Caitlin. Highlight of my time in Atlanta. Awesome. I would love to hear more about that either on mic or off mic later, Caitlin. Yeah. But to get us started with the general content, talking about communication, talking about zoo communication, I'm just curious if you could tell us, Melissa, how do you communicate effectively to such a range of audiences? Like, how do you make it so that that content is accessible and engaging to both children and adults. That sounds difficult. Yeah. So we take an interpretive approach, which is something that many zoos and aquariums, museums, history centers, they kind of do the same thing. So interpretation, it's a communication process that really aims to create meaningful and relevant experiences that are also inclusive and they inspire engagement. So we really want people to, when they, when they leave the zoo or leave the site, We want them to think more about it, think about their experience, think about what they were feeling and how we do that. We always have to keep in mind, like you said, our audience is very diverse. So every single person that comes in the zoo, they carry with them their own experiences, their own background. So it can be a challenge when you have such a broad audience. We do have target audiences for programs and activities, things like, you know, we might do a storybook reading that's aimed at young children versus like a pollinator game or activity for slightly older kids. And then maybe we do something that's like a wildlife trafficking talk, and that would be something that was aimed at teenagers and adults. Um, So we do have those target audiences, but we have to recognize that anybody could attend our programs. 
especially for, for my team out in the zoo. So we also adapt to our audience, ask them a lot of questions to get to know them and kind of go from there. And as someone who has been on one of those tours <laughs> in a calm lab visit to the zoo, I can say that you do that effectively. <laughs> I thought it was very effectively tailored to us, getting a lot into meta discussion of how the presentation was going, which I thought was fascinating. Good. That's awesome. Yeah. Yes. So thumbs up. <laughs> as complicated as, as I'm sure um, the audience is for zoo interpreters, we definitely made that even more complicated, I think, coming in. We had, a lot of our staff members hadn't been to the zoo before. Some of us have been there many, many times. <laughs> not naming names. <laughs> hey, it's not just me. <laughs> and on top of that, you know, different levels of just understanding and knowledge about what Zoo Atlanta does as a specific zoo, but also, you know, our interest in trying to apply these things to the work we do with students here at Georgia Tech. Yeah. And that's something good to point out, too, is um, we like to think a lot about people's motivation for coming to the zoo. So a lot of what we do is we really consider that, like, why would this person or why would this audience come and what can we do to kind of, you know, adapt and tailor that experience? And y'all were an example of that. You're a very specific audience, but we knew you were coming. And we were able to talk about those things with you and kind of and work it in. And when you got here, we were able to talk to you and figure out more about like what you wanted, what you wanted to know. Sometimes with, you know, guests that just walk up to you in the zoo, you don't always have that much. You don't have time ahead of time. So you do kind of have to adapt and learn about your guests like in the moment and kind of go from there. It's a conversation. It's always a, a two way conversation. While we're talking about just how these interactions go. I'm curious if you could tell us, just give us some examples, like tell us of a particularly successful moment of interpretation that you had with some guests at the zoo. So I would say anything that's really tactile tends to be more successful. An example I can think of is we opened a new African savanna area. That was the most recent update to our zoo. And in that, we added this elephant statue, slightly smaller than real life, but close elephant statue. And it had all these flaps on it that you can lift up. And underneath it, it has like information about that particular body part or adaptation on the elephant. And it also is textured like elephant skin. And then it also has a place where you can stand and see like how tall you are compared to the elephant. And when we did our evaluation, we found that people were really, really interested in that. And my favorite part was there's actually some fake elephant poop on the ground. And if you lift it there, you can see the inside of it. And while we were doing observations, kids were the ones that found it every single time. It was always kids that would find it. And then they'd go, you know, drag their adult over and, and have them look at it and get excited about it. You know, kids are so creative and they want to explore everything. So when we're designing things and we want them to be successful, we, we keep that in mind. How can we make them multisensory? So those things tend to be the most successful overall. I have a story that's different. Um, so I, something that sticks out in my mind, this is more of a, a specific interaction I had with a guest years ago. We were doing a program in front of the orangutan exhibit and I was up there talking about you know, orangutans and sustainable versus unsustainable palm oil. So palm oil is an ingredient that's in lots of our household products, and it comes from these oil palms. And a lot of animal habitats are being torn down to create these, you know, these farms where they're, they're getting this palm oil. And that's the unsustainable version 
we want people to shop for the sustainable version that is not coming from, like not taking away habitat from animals. So I'm up there and I'm talking about this with the group. And we have this board that has all these different products like stuck to it. And it's products that do use sustainable palm oil. So it's the good stuff. And I'm talking, I'm going over it. And there's a kid, like a little kid, maybe like eight, I don't know, in the front row. And he sees something up there and he, he grabs his mom's purse, digs down in it and pulls out some gum that's the same brand as one on the board. And he's really, really excited because he said, look, this is something like this is good. Like he made that connection. He had that aha moment and saw something that was relevant to him. And although he may have not understood all the ins and outs, he understood that it was something like positive and something that was helping animals. And that was really cool to see, you know, to see that moment. And yeah, he was talking all about it afterwards. So that was pretty fun. Very impactful. That's awesome. Yeah. I love that story, especially just I feel like there are so many contemporary conversations over the difficulty of communicating complicity or supply chain impact or all of these things like there's just all the discussion of oh it's really difficult to discuss ethics now because there's so many things that have so many unforeseen consequences and to be able to convey that to an eight-year-old I'm very impressed by that that's awesome yeah we're careful too in our messaging so we have um, a rule of no doom and gloom for kids under 10 and you know we We take into consideration a lot about child development and human psychology and a lot of that informs like the interpretive approach that we take. So we make sure that we're not burdening kids with having to save the planet all by themselves right now. We want to encourage them to be inspired by wildlife, love wildlife, have that connection. And sometimes we'll give them really simple things, you know, they could do at home, like they could help plant native plants with their parents or, you know, put up a birdhouse, really simple things without making it sound like, you know, really scary and and intense. We know that that's not good. But sometimes kids come to you and they already know those things and they want to ask you questions. Then with adults, we can have some of those like heavier conversations about the more kind of intensive topics that that might be more challenging to talk about. So that's one of our, our things is we always have to look and see like who's with us, who's around us. And if an adult wants to have one of those conversations, we can say, oh, hey, like, do you want to stay afterwards? I'd be really happy to talk to you about that more. So, yeah, there's there's a responsibility, I feel like, to craft messaging that is going to be impactful and inspire and and create awe and connection, but without burdening kids with a feeling that, you know, a really negative association with, you know, that experience. That's really fascinating to hear because it explains some things that I had noticed um, growing up going to zoos and hadn't quite like figured out what's going on here. And I so as a as a communication professional, the longer I work with students on writing communication skills, the more I appreciate that because I remember going to zoos as you know, you, that's the experience, right? It's like you, you really learn to love animals and, and want to know more about them and get curious. But then, you know, I, every time I go to a zoo, I learn something new. And, you know, over decades, that's really, I just think that's a testament to like what we can do with effective communication that no matter where, you know, why you're going, or at what point in your life, you still have something to learn at the very same place. Because I have to say the palm oil, that's something that um, Zoo Atlanta drew my attention to. I hadn't really, I'd sort of been aware of it, but I didn't totally understand the ramifications un- until I heard heard um, someone on a tour and then stopped to look at the the display and things like that. So that's really, that's so cool that the to 
I'm sure to see the the kid responding like that. Such a great moment. Yeah, it, it really is. And in those moments, you know why you're doing what you're doing. It really reinforces that. And for palm oil, there is an app, a shopping app. The Cheyenne Mountain Zoo has created a sustainable shopping palm oil app that you can download. And then you can check it like when you're going to the grocery store and check out what brands you're using and if they're on the more sustainable side or not. So that's one of the really simple actions that we recommend for people. We want to come up with things that are uh, actions that are like low barrier that are really easy to engage in. And that's a a perfect example of, of one of those things. Yeah. And we will, of course, link to that in the show notes for that project. (laughs) Thank you so much. I had no idea that app existed. So thanks for sharing that with us. I'm curious at this point, if you could tell us a little bit more about, so you brought up this discipline of interpretation, this approach to zoo and museum communication. And this is what all of these examples are of. Could you tell us a little bit about the training and preparation behind that? Like, how were you introduced to it? What sort of preparation did you have to go through? Right. That is a great question. So for me personally, I was doing an internship in college on something different. And I came to the zoo and and did a project and I met someone that was doing interpretation out at the gorilla habitat. And I started talking to them and I could tell how passionate they were. And it made such a difference for me, like such a difference for my, my visit and what I learned. It was just really impactful. So that kind of inspired me. And so really for interpretation, how we train our interpreters here at the zoo is they go through uh, an interpretation training that really focuses on methods and techniques. And then they do some shadowing. They you know, learn from other interpreters, from some of our experienced volunteers and go through that process. There's a lot of kind of listening to other people and picking up like what they're doing because everyone does things a little differently. And that's the cool thing about interpretation is you find your own voice. You find what works for you and everybody has their own, you know, passion and way of doing it. So it's one of the things you pick up from watching other people and all the stories you hear about animals, like you pick that up from other people. So we do that hands-on training experience, but We also have online training modules, which is newer for us, but really, really cool where, you know, we have a Google Classroom set up and people go through online modules to learn a lot of different animal information. And then from there, it's a continual learning process. You know, we have different opportunities for um, the animal care team and, and vets and other folks to come talk to us so we can learn more people that are working on conservation projects, all of that. So we get the the right information and we can figure out what's the most important thing to share with the public. So it's a continual process. I'm a believer in lifelong learning. And I guess too, for majors, for school, like if people are interested in that, it it kind of, as long as you have a four-year degree and it's something, biology, zoology, environmental studies, communications, any of those kind of things or anything relevant is really helpful. And volunteering is an internships are a really good way to get started. (laughs) You anticipated my next question there. (laughs) I figured someone's listening to this somewhere and thinking like, this sounds like the best job ever. How do I do it? (laughs) And you also don't like necessarily have to have a college degree to get started. It kind of depends on where you want to work and what their qualifications, their requirements are. But again, volunteering internships are, are really, really great. A lot of places have really well-developed volunteer programs where you can learn these skills. So yeah, that's I spent a, a while volunteering. I know not everyone's able to do that, 
I recognize that. But if you have the opportunity, it's 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 pretty great. Yeah, I was about to ask the same thing because it's, uh, we have you know so many students in the area, and it's relatively easy to get to the zoo on Marta, and, and it seems like it'd be a great opportunity just to, for people to get a sense of what it's like. But, you know, another thing we we have are a lot of students who they're interested in science, but then as they as they progress through their programs, they discover an interest in communication too, because because they begin to realize. Why does this matter if people don't know about it? How do I how do I share this expertise that I have or I feel passionate about this? How do I how do I share this information? So it'd be a really great experience for for students. Yeah, the zoo does a lot of amazing projects as far as conservation and research. And people really don't know. And so that's part of our job. Like you said, like if if people don't know about it. We have to find ways of sharing that because we want people to know what we do. That's really the whole purpose and, and supports the mission of the zoo. So I think that's that's really important. That's one reason we were so interested in visiting in May, you know, in part for the communication aspect, but also in recognizing the important research initiatives that Zoo Atlanta has been a part of for a long time. I know the uh, gorillas and the pandas and, and many other species. And we don't often think about the zoo as a place to go that's in many ways no different than a, a research talk or, or something for, you know, they're really closely related, but sometimes it's like, ooh, cute pandas or, you know, whatnot, or ooh, look at the meerkats. And then we forget that this is scientific research happening right in front of us. Yeah. And that's the thing too, is you want to make it enjoyable and fun, right? Like that's a huge part of our job too, is making these experiences something that are, is memorable, something enjoyable you know, making it stick for people. Again, like I was talking about earlier, we want them to, to think about something after they leave, whether it's something they learned or if it's a feeling. They have, you know, it, it provokes further feeling and thought after their experience. And we want people to also be able to come to their own conclusions. So that's one of the cool things about interpretation as well is sometimes we may not get them to exactly what we were wanting them to come to. However, we've given them these tools, these resources, the experiences for them to come to their own conclusions. And I think that's just as important as them getting the right answer, basically. And hearing you say that it resonates so much with some of the, the things we, we say when we reflect on our teaching and these kind of conversations we have in passing after a class, you know, that hope that, you know, trying to, to, to keep in mind that we're not necessarily going to totally change someone's mind or, you know, give them all the information at once. It's that, right, trying to get them curious, get them interested, get keep them thinking. And if we can keep people thinking once they've left our classrooms, we've done our job. And it sounds like it's the same for the zoo as well. Definitely. This is building on some things you said earlier, but thinking a little bit about our students and their own experiences. I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit about communication difficulties you've encountered and what you learned from them, how you learned from them. <laughs> I imagine that's just a relatable experience when it comes to science communication. Yes, absolutely. So like I said before, we have very diverse audiences, people with all different backgrounds. They bring with them their whole life experience. And um, we do have people that sometimes bring up challenging topics with us or difficult topics, and they're not always animal related. Sometimes they are, sometimes they're, they're more science related, just different, different things. And, you know, we go into those conversations and a lot of times I like to start with something like, oh, okay, like I hear you, I understand. Can you tell me more about that? Or, you know, oh, okay, like, you know, what led you to, to think that? Why? You know, and 
make it a conversation and kind of have them, sometimes people can open up a little bit more when you're willing to listen and make people feel heard. And that that's, you know, part of the challenge is you need to represent your organization's values. And you also, at the same time, you know, you you do still want to be able to engage them in that conversation. So making sure you stick along those lines is is really important. You learn what your organization teaches and you you do your best to represent everything professionally. Yeah, I think we can definitely relate with that uh, as teachers <laughs> and communicators. Yes, definitely. Another question that I had, and I don't know if this is grounded in me potentially being an inattentive zoo visitor as a child, or if there has been a change. But I remember in May visiting Zoo Atlanta, I did not remember such an emphasis on conservation efforts in, I don't know, school trips to the zoo and stuff like that. So I'm curious, has zoo communication, has interpretation when applied to zoos changed over time? And and how has it changed? Well, I think zoos in general have changed a lot, a whole lot over time. (laughs) And, you know, conservation education have come more to the forefront more recently. And so the strategies for communicating that have also shifted. It also depends on where you go, you know, what organization you're going to visit or Zoo Atlanta. For us, it was, you know, definitely something that we, we wanted to move towards and, and talk more about. And, you know, it's one of our goals now is to make sure that we're sharing that information with our, with our visitors and finding ways to do it that are interesting and fun, too. Yeah, I was wondering about that as well, because I've been to some zoos where they have the old enclosures for the animals that, you know, just for today, it's hard for us to imagine because they're not mimicking their natural habitats in any ways. And, you know, it's been interesting to see how different zoos handle that. And some of them are using that as a door to education, too, and and to opening up these conversations. Because it does seem, I was curious, too, like, how recent is this? No, and that's a good point, just more generally, like, yes, of course, <laughs> zoos have changed drastically. Like now I'm just having like nightmare images of, I don't know, 19th century zoos <laughs> or something. It sounds pretty scary. But Caitlin, I haven't seen any of those examples. Like it reminds me a little bit of, like, I remember going to an anthropology museum and seeing a room that was set up in terms of, oh, here's what a display might have looked like in the 19th century to talk about the racist history of anthropology and stuff like that. I I love that zoo communication is being self-critical in that same way, talking about history. As science develops more over time, as well as people's understanding of animals, you know, things have changed a lot, definitely um, in a positive direction. I think that's reflected in in our interpretation as well. Absolutely. Zoo Atlanta has been one of the places that's really caused me to think critically about things. Uh, I've been to a lot of zoos, as you can imagine. (laughs) But it's, it's definitely, and I think for me, it's, it holds a special place in my heart, admittedly, um, which is why I was like, Eric, can I join the podcast? <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit, of, there's a little fandom going on here. But it partly is, I became a member of Zoo Atlanta when I first moved to Atlanta for the Britain postdoc here at Georgia Tech in writing and communication. And so I was experiencing the zoo the, for the first time at the same time as is experiencing being a faculty member at a university for the first time and teaching uh, as a faculty member. And so, uh, you know, I, I started seeing things in a totally different way. And it was very unexpected because, like I said, my previous memories of zoos were as a small child. All I remember was when I met the pandas at the DC Zoo as a child that they ate sweet potatoes and I like sweet potatoes, so they were my favorite animal. <laughs> 
you know, what I've learned from Zeus has really grown in, in unexpected ways that I, I didn't I didn't foresee that, you know, learning so much professionally that I've applied in my own in my own career. Didn't see that coming. <laughs> you did remember the sweet potatoes. And that's one of the things is it was something that was relevant to you. So you took that away. You know, so that's a big part of what we do is making it relevant to people's everyday lives. That's that's a really important piece is is the relevance and those universal concepts, you know, talking about things like, you know, family, for example, we could talk about lions live in a pride and they have, you know, the male is the dad and there's, you know, lots of females and then they're cubs. Like, what does your family look like? That kind of thing, you know, helps make it more concrete. Absolutely. It's so cool to see that happening when you walk around the zoo. I've, I've seen those moments and, and hearing this, the kids have questions because of something, whether it was something they got to feel, someone came over and said, you can, you know, to, to feel what the animal's fur uh, feels like, or there's an informational plaque or something that's down on their level. It's, it's really neat to see that happening in, in real time. Yeah, I love that so much. One thing that hadn't crossed my mind, but your story, Caitlin, makes obvious is zoo communication is is potentially a long game. Like you show up when you're a kid, you become invested. And then as an adult, you can access this further level of interpretation, this further level of the communication the zoo was always doing. That's just fantastic. I came to the zoo. This was my zoo when I was a kid. So I grew up coming here and, you know, all of that, the school field trips and my family came regularly. And yeah, it obviously made a big difference for me. <laughs> I should say one of the things that, you know, I started thinking about zoo interpretation, getting curious about it. And again, that's what prompted that visit in May is just we all kept thinking as we talked, you know, shared our experiences like we have a lot to learn. You know, we're learning when we go to the zoo from the interpreters and from the staff um, that we interact with and from all the, the displays and things. Um, there's a lot we can take away from this. One thing we should also add that, you know, we have a multimodal composition program. And so we're not just teaching students how to write. We're also teaching them about how they communicate in speech, through visual design, but also through nonverbal communication. Also, part of that, we don't emphasize it quite as much because we've got so much going on here. But also part of it is things like tactile experience, smell, just how do we, you know, what is the environment that you're communicating in? And what are all the things at your disposal to help someone understand something and to get information from your brain into their brain? Like, what are all those things at your disposal? We oftentimes don't have the tactile part of the smell part of it available for us in the work we do in academic research. Not all the time. Many of our students work in labs where this is something they they can actually go do in their presentations. But, you know, that's another place where we see a lot of similarities and we have a lot to learn from because we're big on teaching students about looking at that sort of menu of options of ways that you can communicate something and then thinking about who it is you're communicating to. Right. And what their level of experience is, what their age and development. I think that's really fascinating, something we need to think more about is that that sort of development a angle as well. Where are people in their intellectual development? And then how do you make the choice, the right choices and get the sort of right selection of approaches? And we see that the zoo is such, just such a great example of that at work. Yeah, well, thank yeah, you. I was, I was definitely blown away by that, <laughs> by the elephant statue example, because yes, we talk about nonverbal communication. We talk a little bit about tactility, but again, 
not very much. And I was just sitting here thinking like, okay, I want to add this to my week one lecture. Definitely. Okay, we're going to talk about the zoo. We have to. So thank you so much for that. Yeah, absolutely. We are great believers in lifelong learning as well. (laughs) One last question that I had is... Just I think one thing that you've been doing throughout this episode, Melissa, is just sort of giving us some some useful communication principles to keep in mind, some principles that seem to guide interpretation. So make it relevant, make it everyday and recognizable. It's about engagement at a certain level, like get someone to keep thinking. Maybe that's more important than getting across a particular message because they can work their way toward it eventually, as long as you made them think about it or care about it at a certain level. Do any other, I'm putting you on the spot a little bit here, apologies, do any other principles come immediately to your mind where it's, this is something that I go for every day in zoo communication? Yes. So a big one is themes. So the word themes means something different to people in different fields. For interpretation, your theme is kind of your your roadmap for what else you're going to talk about. And people will remember themes and not facts. So if you create a theme, a nice sentence that's got, you know, something tangible, and then you use those intangibles, universals, other things to to connect it and give it meaning in your theme, then people will connect with that. They will remember that piece. If everything else you talk about supports that, it's going to be more memorable. So instead of just like spitting out random facts, numbers, all kinds of stuff that's all over the place, if you have a nice theme that has, you know, meaning to it, and then everything else you do is supporting that, it's going to be much more memorable for the guests. So we try to make our interpretation thematic, for sure. Uh, And one of the other things I said earlier was asking your audience questions, that involvement piece is really important. So we are not doing like a formal presentation. It's really much more of a conversation. And I think that's a really important point. It should always be, even with a huge crowd, it can be a conversation. And, and I think that's, that's really important and also helps you know your audience. It helps you know, you know how engaged they are and what they're learning. So I'd say those are, are two of the, the other big ones that come to mind. I love that, especially the reminder to to uh, interact and ask questions and get that feedback. That's something in the again from the teacher perspective. You know, thinking about what we've been through the last couple of years, the pandemic and teaching remotely, it's made that so clear to us that we're not doing enough of that in almost all cases. That we we tend to we're still a little bit sage on the stage, and that's really just not facilitating learning in the way that we think it is. So. That's a that's a great reminder for us. See, we have so much to learn from y'all. Um, there's so many overlaps and similarities, but that's that's definitely one. And the themes, I like that. They'll remember themes, not facts. I need to like put that on a post-it somewhere for sure. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure we have a lot to learn from y'all as well. Like I said, it's that process over time of just learning from different people. You know, I say we have part-time interpreters that maybe they don't have a lot of experience or interns, volunteers that come in. And I tell them, I learn something from every single person that I work with, every single person that I, you know, do interpretation with, or, you know, even in training, like I I always learn something from working with other people. And I think that that piece is, I think it's really cool because like I said before, it's, it's all about your unique voice and your passion. And that's something we're always talking about here, uh, you know, that communication is always a collaborative process. 
you don't write, you don't speak, you don't do anything alone. So very much the same, the same atmosphere for us and what we're always trying to impress upon students um, so that this stuff doesn't happen in a vacuum. Do you have any final questions at this point, Caitlin? Oh, this has been great. I can't, once again, I've learned, all, I have a lot to think about now. Um, man, I've, if I could engineer a way to, to bring my students, doesn't fit with our theme <laughs> this time, but man, if I can make it work. <laughs> so Melissa, before we sign off, is there anything you'd like to add? Anything that you didn't have a chance to bring up earlier in the episode? Sure. So the first thing is, I want to talk about AZA, which is the Association for Zoos and Aquariums. So definitely recommend looking up your local AZA Zoo. Zoo Atlanta is an AZA zoo. And AZA is an accrediting organization that has really high standards for animal care, also for education, for a lot of different aspects of how zoos operate. So when you visit an AZA zoo, you know you're supporting an organization that has those high standards, that meets or exceeds those high standards. So I would definitely recommend that. They also ensure that, you know, conservation is, is part of the mission and what the organizations do. So I think that's really important. And the second thing I wanted to mention was NAI, which is the National Association for Interpretation. They offer a really great certification course in interpretation. It's a certified interpretive guide class. And there's people that teach it locally. Uh, and you can go through the class and it gives you kind of all the basics for interpretation, really prepares you for, for giving those interpretive talks and interactions and gives you tools for your toolbox. It's a really, really good class. So it's something I, I definitely recommend. Uh, there's a lot of other resources too through NAI. So I definitely would recommend looking them up. Thank you so much for those resource recommendations. Again, <laughs> practical, low barrier steps. Make sure that you're going to a good zoo that is pursuing good efforts. Also, I don't know, just all this talk about interpretation has me thinking about what sort of public humanities projects can I do? So thank you. Thank you for that. This has been so much fun and so enlightening. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode and for telling us so much about zoo communication and interpretation. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Yes, thank you so much. And thank you listeners for joining us for The Buzzword. And we will check in with you next month. Bye for now. 